Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. On tonight's program, we bring you noticias, arte, cultura. We focus on art that's making a change in our community. We'll bring you an interview with the artists behind the important show, Estamos Contra el Muro. We are against the wall. We'll also bring you an interview with community leaders and celebrated musicians, Los Ensontles, as well as bring you an interview on the Latino Film Festival that you can still catch and brings films from all over America Latina as well as the Latino community here in the United States. All this and much more, we'll even give away a pairs of tickets to A Tribe Called Red. Stay tuned. Llame Voy by Las Cafeteras with a heartbreaking song about migration from the global south, which leads us into our next segment. Sita Kuratomi Baumik is an artist, writer, and educator whose work combines food and various art practices to connect the personal and historical impacts of migration. She is a graduate of the California College of the Arts, a practicing artist, and a co-founding member of the People's Kitchen Collective. Sita's upcoming exhibit at Southern Exposure Gallery in San Francisco is curated by Michelle Carlson, the editor-in-chief of Hyphen Magazine and the executive director of Daily Serving, an art practical. Sat down with Sita to discuss the collaborative exhibition titled Estamos Contra el Muro, We Are Against the Wall, as well as Trump's proposed border wall and the history of piñatas. I know you work with or have worked with the People's Kitchen Collective and the left-wing futbolistas, and you've taught photography. How would you introduce yourself? I would introduce myself as an artist who loves to cook and is obsessed with migration. I, that's one of the things that really has, I mean, it explains and informs where and who I am and it runs through everything that I do. Can you tell me more about that? Like what has migration meant in your personal life as well as in your art? So my mother is Japanese Colombian. My father is Indian. He's from a small village outside of Kolkata, about three hours outside in a tiny village. And they, they met in Pasadena in 1968. And I used to say that my existence was made possible because of the airplane. Um, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't know kind of at other points in history, like if that combination of, of who I am would have been even possible. So it's, you know, something that I grew up thinking about and it's um, and something that I see in, in everything that I eat and everything that I do. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love ingredients so much because I see that all of those crazy histories about where food came from um, and the fact that we eat the entire planet's foods in California in vegetables and in seeds and in plants. And that's part of that migration history. So you're an artist, but you also, like you mentioned, um, are interested in food, and your work kind of gathers from all these different artistic disciplines. Why do you think that is? As a mixed person, I feel like mixing is like just kind of what we do, you know? It's, we are born into this like reality that's already a mixture of so many things, and so that's something that I think I also do with writing and with food and cooking and art making it's like part of I think the reality of like how brown folks live and work like there isn't that kind of same distinction I think and culturally of like you know this is my work and this is my play and this is my activism and this is my you know family it's like it, it always is just super messy and and um, bleeds together. When I think about migration I also think about borders and as an artist do you encounter a lot of borders within that artistic community? 
Yes. So that's an, a really excellent question. And I think that something that I've been thinking a lot about in the in terms of collaboration. And so I collaborate with Saqib uh, Kibal and Jocelyn Jackson and the People's Kitchen Collective. And we have also been thinking about this moment in time uh, where there are other collectives of artists of color who are also working together. I'm thinking of folks like Michelada Think Tank or Related Tactics, um, which Michelle Carlson is a part of. And I think it's like this desire not to be doing this work alone and to feel supported by other folks. Um, and also to recognize that work has, our, our work um, as black and brown people has always been collaborative. It's just kind of a way of approaching all of these issues. But there's like a, a need for kind of like, hold my hand through this and I wanna do this together. I don't wanna do this alone. That, uh, that I feel like a lot of uh, folks, a lot of artists of color are, are really asking, are continuing to ask these really hard questions of institutions, you know, where it's been many, many years in the making and there still is a lack of representation of artists, of curators, of writers of color in, in a lot of institutions. You mentioned Michelle Carlson, who's the curator for your upcoming show at Southern Exposure. Can you explain how the two of you kind of came together to produce your upcoming show? Yeah, so she had approached me actually uh, about doing a project at Southern Exposure, which is, had always been a dream of mine. I mean, it's a really, of the experimental art spaces in San Francisco really established, and it's just kind of this place that I always really wanted to work in. Um, and we had originally planned on something earlier in the year, but as it shifted towards uh, right before the election, I felt like I really had a responsibility to address some of the rhetoric and the ideology that's like going into this uh, this particular election. Um, and the the concept for the show really shifted around that. And so we really talked, we had a lot of conversations just about what it meant to be doing something the month before uh, we have this really important vote. Can you explain the concept for the show? Absolutely. So um, I work a lot in not only food, but also with craft and artisans and artists. Um, and particularly in the last couple years, I've been working with uh, some artisans in Mexico. And I was thinking just about what it means um, to have a minimum wage uh, in Mexico that was just raised to under $5 a day. So it's, again, just, just to repeat that, it's under $5 a day. And it was recently raised to that when we're talking about raising the hourly minimum wage in San Francisco, um, you know, or setting that as a national standard. And it's something that, uh, in collaborating with other artists in Mexico, just thinking about like filling out a grant proposal, for instance, and deciding what's a, what's a fair uh, day rate for your time versus my time, and what does your government say you deserve, and what does my government say I deserve, and it's wildly different, and the hundreds of dollars a day different. And so thinking about some of those issues and um, you know, pairing that with this massive wall that Trump has talked about building and thinking about not only that wall, but many other border walls. I was like, what are some of the materials that I could use and the folks that I could, could work with? And piñatas was one of the things that jumped out to me. So when she was little, my mother is Japanese and she was born and raised in Colombia and they had piñatas made of ceramic. They were like thick kind of flower pot uh, piñatas. And and I was like, wait, isn't that kind of dangerous? She's like, nah, nobody ever got hurt. It's totally fine. I'm like, what kind of sweets would you put in it? We were really beautiful sweets made of raw sugar cane. And Colombia, I mean, my family left Japan to grow sugar cane in Colombia. So like, I mean, the use, of, the ways that Colombians use sugar cane is just like amazing, the variety of candy and all of that. But it was not, she was like, you know, it wasn't a birthday thing. It was a holiday kind of treat. And it was either Christmas or Easter. I was like, wait a minute, like, what are you talking about this religious kind of connection? And it, so the seven pointed cones on uh, the traditional piñata represent the seven deadly sins. And smashing it represents your rejection of evil to get to like the sweetness inside. And if you can imagine like a church putting out a call in a small town to say, hey kids, like come and get free candy, you know, like that's an awesome marketing, like, little, you know, man, that's like, just, they were smart. So um, the piñata was born of a lot of different influences. When I realized that, I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. It represents evil. Piñatas exist only to be destroyed. Like, you don't have a piñata that lasts, like, 20 years or 50 years, you know? Like, 
you see it, you know what you're supposed to do with it. You're supposed to bash it. So why not build a giant wall out of it? Because to me, this the border wall, you know, the border itself represents like the eighth deadly sin. So the project is in collaboration with a local piñata maker in um, Fruitvale, um, Victor Martinez, and he is making the bricks for the wall, and I am um, creating a wall out of it. And then we have like all of these amazing collaborators that are gonna come in and really bring this wall to life, and hopefully to its death as well. <laughs> so someone had asked me, you know, is, the, is, this, tr is this wall inspired by Trump? Mm -hmm. And inspired is a, is a pretty complicated notion when you're talking about someone um, like uh, Mr. Trump, but, but it is and it isn't. I mean, I think that this, his proposal is so terrifying, so deeply terrifying um, to so many people, and I, also, I see it as two different things. One is like this moment where um, Latino and Asian communities in particular have a lot at stake. There's a lot to lose in even proposing something like this, even saying it and having more than one person say, hey, maybe this is a good idea. I mean, that's absolutely horrifying. But then also to think about, you know, the the idea that, you know, Obama has, under his presidency, we have deported more um, people from the U.S. than under any other president. And, and, you know, the idea that this wall is not a new proposal, it's not a new idea, uh, to this country and to many other countries, but also that this is not something that will go away with if he's not elected. Like, it exists right now. The question of what to do with it, to expand it, to uh, shut parts of it down is an ongoing conversation and will affect any presidency. The other wall that I think a lot about is the wall in the West Bank. And that's also a wall that's many times greater in its scope as it's proposed than the Berlin Wall. But it is completely cutting off Palestinians from land, from movement, from their ability to you know, support themselves. And it's this apartheid wall that is also this, this thing that was this kind of political rallying cry in this way that, that Trump is using it as well. And it's like, to me, how do you switch this idea of something that's like so divisive, that's supposed to divide communities against each other and is there a way to construct this symbolic wall in a way that does the opposite and actually brings people together and brings community together and brings artists together in a collaborative process? So the, I understand that there is a number of different movements within the exhibition. It's almost like a party. It's almost like a celebration. Can you describe those a bit? I think folks that have experienced trauma have this incredible way of flipping things into making like terrible things beautiful or even fun. and. You know, and there's, you know, there's a part of this that's kind of like a terrible sense of humor about this thing. Like, we're trying to recreate part of a border wall. Like, this is a terrible idea. Like, why, you know, why spend time on it? But it's, for me, an opportunity to just bring together different, both different folks that are, um, that I collaborate with in my own practice and, and new people as well. We are, so, uh, as I mentioned, the Las, uh, Piñatas Las Morenitas Martinez is a, a local piñata maker, and getting custom-made piñatas is actually pretty, you know, times are tough for piñateros in the Bay Area, rent is high, um, and and there aren't as many, I think, as maybe there, there once were, and this, you know, like, I was at Target the other day, and I was looking at the little, like, section with the party supplies, and, like, those are machine-made. They're die-cut in China, and, like, there's no, you know, there's no soul to the thing, you know, and it just makes me hurt because it could so easily be produced, you know, in a different way that involves care and celebration, you know, so it's like, what is this doing to our celebrations if even our, you know, anyway. So um, he's fabricating the bricks and um, Cece Carpio from Trust Your Struggle, who's an amazing muralist, is going to come in and tag the wall, um, you know, because it's a wide open space and with all walls, they, you know, they get political slogans, they, you know, people try to take chunks out of it, people, you know, it's never a static thing. The little piñata maker, um, Isaias, is, he is making a scale model to really show the absurdity of the, the scope of, of Trump's proposal. At one point he mentioned in a speech that he wanted to make this wall 55 feet high. So if you can imagine like a five-story building, and standing in front of a five-story building, like that is the scale that he wants this thing to be. Since then, he's kind of taken it down a couple feet. It's fluctuated a little bit, but we wanted to just illustrate like how massive that is um, in an architectural model also made out of tiny little piñatas. And during the closing reception, 
Norma Lisman, who's an amazing chef, is coming in from Mexico City to serve guajolotas, which are, it's like a carb triple threat. It's a tamal inside of bread. So it's like a tamal sandwich served usually with atole. And it's a really common food that, you know, workers, like before you really have to make a big push, you know, for the day, will eat as, you know, quite possibly your only meal for the day. And we were talking about ideas um, of what we could serve, you know, at this destruction party. And she's like, well, why don't we fortify folks with what they might need to either cross the border or take some take a wall down? So we're going to have that October 15th. And the People's Kitchen Collective are going to be narrating the destruction of this wall. So I'm like, just, ev- you know, everyone's been so just the creativity that everyone's bringing to it is just like, it's so good. I can't, I can't wait for folks to come by. <laughs> What about La Palanga? You know, as, as part of my practice, I really think that the separation between the senses of thinking of like, you know, we go to a museum only to see things is a very European and very white construct. And I think that indigenous and popular practices around the world, many of them don't have the same distinction. Like you, you know, the senses are integrated and they're not separated out. And so sound is so important to, I think, anyone's experience of the border of just hearing like vendors and um, police and um, you know like that's that sonic crossing and so La Pelanga is a DJ collective based in the Bay Area and they are creating a migration mixtape of songs that really you know there's so many songs um, throughout different parts of the world that have been created out of this longing, this heartbreak often, or what it means to cross a border. And so they're they're creating this this mixtape and they're also gonna be DJing the the closing. And it's gonna be actually part of the exhibit as well. The CDs will be for sale on a little tr- a little hand cart. <laughs> and you'll be able to hear it as part of the kind of landscape of this wall. I see a lot of opportunities with your piece, like you were saying, to bring together different communities of color. Um, and it seems to me that all, all walls aren't necessarily tangible. Mm-hmm. Are there other walls that you want us to consider in addition to these kind of historic, like monumental physical walls? Totally. So, yeah, and I think that this, the U.S.-Mexico border is a very physical border for us in California. Um, but I think also as Asian Americans, I mean, those borders, you know, for my parents, they arrived here by plane. That was a very different kind of border crossing. You know, they have, there, are, there yes, there are checkpoints and there are physical kind of places, but there's also this, this distance is so emotional too. Someone told me, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in Mexico and they were saying, you know, there are, pe- there are old people here dying of heartbreak, you know, and there's something about that, just that separation of knowing that like you can never see a loved one again. You, you're not going to see your mother again before she dies. That Yes, it has to do with a physical border, but it has to do so much with more with an emotional border as well, you know, and just what that does to, you know, your own relationships in your life and our relationships or a family is like, is, is, is so deep. I, I don't know that there's a way to really, to, you know, there's no calculation for how deep that trauma goes and how that transmits to future generations. It occurs to me that we have this idea of borders as being this really negative space, but how there's in some ways like this beautiful um, culture that kind of springs up around them. Mm-hmm. Did you always envision um, the audience as being kind of active participants in the exhibit? Yeah, so the question of the participant is has been something, I mean, I always think about that, like what, I'm a, I have an event background. I used to manage gigantic events. And so I'm kind of always thinking about, okay, you know, my old boss was so amazing at just teaching me how to think about the way that people experience space. Like, what do you, what do you see first? What's the first thing you hear? Does someone greet you? You know, like what, what is that like? Um, But I've also been thinking about that experience kind of behind the scenes. And um, we uh, work with a, a pastor, poet, Marvin K. White at the People's Kitchen Collective. And he was encouraging me to think about this, like the magic that happens in the kitchen before the meal is even served. And, and, you know, it's like one of the things that I do have control over is just like the, that experience of us creating this thing. If you come, you know, whatever you might leave with or not, you know, that's like, I can set the stage for that to happen, but I don't really have a whole lot of say in that. But what I do have is like, I can, you know, kind of um, be a part of this 
group of folks that are going into the production of this thing. So it's like the experience for me is I, I keep thinking of it as this kind of like as two parts, you know, what, like all of everything that goes into it. And then, you know, and then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> but it is always important to me um, to have an opportunity. For me, it's a question of access, too, is that by design, galleries are going to exclude and include people. Uh, whether or not it's free, open to the public or not, it's kind of one of those invisible barriers that you were talking about. Who feels uh, comfortable in the space that has a lot of privilege and power in it, you know, just going through the door and um, creating more invitations to like, hey, come smash up this thing, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to open the door maybe a little bit more. Like, I don't have delusions about it opening it wide open, you know, all the way. Um, because it's still housed within a space that, that means a very particular thing, but, but you know, hopefully creating these entry points for folks to participate. Do you have specific communities that you're hoping will, will come visit the exhibition and move through that space? You know, I, there's part of this that thinks, of, like, you know, taking a, a, a stick to a border wall just would be so therapeutic for so many of us. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of, um, I think, all of us have been impacted by the border, whether you realize it or not. And I'm hoping that this uh, sends a little message out to those folks who who, who think and feel and, and live the experience of this border, um, even from miles away, um, to, you know, to hopefully uh, invite them into the space. to Mujer Soy by Las Cafeteras. This version is a remix by Osaka-born, LA-based DJ Yukisito. You can experience Sita's border wall and help destroy it at Southern Exposure, located at 3030 20th Street in San Francisco's Mission District. The exhibit opens on September 9th with a public dialogue with the artists and organizers on September 22nd and a community demolition party on closing night, October 15th. To learn more, visit www.soex.org. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and we are doing what we do every year, which is walking through some of the incredible films featured in San Francisco's Latino Film Festival, the Cinemas Festival. You've been hearing about this festival now for eight years. I can't believe it, eight years. So I've been talking to the director of the festival, um, Lucho Ramirez, who we happen to get to talk every time this year. So Lucho, thank you so much for joining us and walking us through some of these incredible films. Thank you for having me. So Lucho, we are halfway through the festival, but there's still a lot of gems that people haven't missed. And so they're still on the horizon and they need to act fast because this is a really busy, fun week and also next week. But why don't you tell us a little bit just overall, taking a step back and from the specifics of the film, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you all saw in terms of the breadth and range and also some of the issues that were tackled. Yes. Once again, you know, we launched uh, the festival mid-September during the Heritage Month dates. And uh, we started out at the Alamo Draft House. So this was a first for us using that amazing space. And I was really happy that uh, they welcomed us. And we spent a week there showing some really incredible films, comedies, uh, doc, uh, and just a real variety with uh, some sellout crowds. So I'm really happy about how we started. But as always, it's important for us to be at cultural centers and alternative spaces. So that's where we find ourselves at this point. 
So that's something new and exciting. So you're expanding the venues and also the locations. So before we walk through some of the locations that still are on the horizon for the festival, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the themes and issues that were tackled in the festival? Because there's always such a range. Right. There was a lot of variety in this year's program. We were really happy to see what we are calling a, a series of spotlights, a spotlight on Colombian films, on Cuban films, as well as Brazilian films. And it's a spotlight in the sense that we have more than one film representing each country. As a relatively small festival, we really call it a sampling of, of a festival. So if we have one from a country, we feel pretty good about it. If we have multiple, it's just amazing. So we have... Um, Several films, for example, we had a film called Dogs or Perros from Colombia by Harold Trompetero, and this was a U.S. premiere. We hadn't had a U.S. premiere for a feature film, and it actually had a celebrity in it, it had John Leguizamo starring in it. And it was a rough drama, prison drama, so you know, we definitely started going into a different space with this year's program in that there were several films that were a little bit on the rougher side. La Gunguna did very well, a film out of the Dominican Republic. We had another film called The Farm, La Granja, from Puerto Rico. Both of them were sold out, both of them touching different communities that we don't typically know how to reach, the Puerto Rican community, the Dominican community. But it's not to say that it's the room, the room fills up with those different groups. It just happens that they notice and they really do spread the word. So uh, I was happy to see that. I was happy to see the filmmakers come out for a couple of these films. And uh, to their surprise, too, the uh, acceptance for their films and, uh, and how it resonates. So those are some of the surprises, I would say. But yes, as far as the venues go, we're, we try, we're trying different things. I think that it's important for the festival to reach uh, different uh, segments of the community, and some people prefer to experience the film festival within a theater. So we're, we tried out the Alamo Draft House, which is amazing. And next we're going to be at the Roxy Theater, which is a space that we've used in the past. I'm speaking to Lucho Ramirez. We're talking about the 8th annual San Francisco Latino Film Festival, which always is such a treat and is something that really has become a, just an attraction to San Francisco because there are a lot of folks that come from far away to catch films that they couldn't see otherwise. So left on the festival um, list is we still have some films at La Peña Cultural Center, which here in Berkeley we know and love. Also, some there's still some films at the... Roxy Theater, as well as the Mission Corps Community Center, and also the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and the De Young Museum. So that's a lot of fun range. So tell us a little bit about some of those films. And they're events, really. They're more than films. They're, they're more events. than films. At this point of the festival, it really is a kind of a celebration of each individual film. You mentioned the Roxy Theater will have a couple of the more quirky films at the Roxy. We'll have a film called uh, A Mama, which is a film out of Spain from the Basque country that is more of a family drama, and it deals a little bit with uh, modern life versus heritage as far as uh, a farming and that side of, uh, of you know, we, we think of ourselves as modern and urban, but, you know, scratch the surface and most of us came from rural side of the world or, or our country. So this film kind of touches on that and what happens when people start, families start to break away from their heritage in a way. And so that's a really wonderful film. And this is the second time we have this filmmaker's work here at the festival, although this time around it's a, a narrative in his first and uh, it's an award-winning film out of Spain. And that film is playing at the Roxy as well as at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Uh, the other film that we're closing with at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is a film from Colombia called uh, Land and Shade. And it's uh, been very celebrated on the film festival circuit. Again, it's another film that touches on land and farming and, and family and conflict and with the backdrop of uh, Colombia's past. And going back to your question about some running themes, I would say that that's been one of the running themes. It's been family, land, and, and conflict, and treated in a way that, you know, it doesn't center on the violence aspect of it, but it, on the human toll that, that those things take. 
Oftentimes when people think about um, Latino films, they think about all these really intense, dramatic, poignant, beautiful, but also heart-wrenching films because we think about La Cruzada, we think about exploitation, we think about war, genocide, colonialism, imperialism. There's a lot that comes with all these films. But one thing that I love about your festival is that the festival is often a celebration and has a lot of a range. It has some, if you're in the mood for a comedy even, which you know you can't always find at the Latino Film Festival, festivals in other places um you can find that here or you can find films that are tackling issues with um with a lot more you know funk and soul and humor and just not it's not just doom and gloom if you will so personally know that i have marked on my calendar to see in the game which seems really uplifting and positive so why don't you talk to us about some of those films right and i'm glad that you mentioned the, the comedy uh when we program you know we definitely program with the public in mind Yes, we're looking at, you know, a good sampling and things that are on the festival circuit and look at whatever has been submitted. But we've also noticed a little bit of a pattern of the things that we bring as far as an opening night film goes. And this year we ended up going with a Chilean comedy, and it was a romantic comedy at that. But it was not a conventional romantic comedy, and that's what was so beautiful about it. And it was really, really great to hear laughter on a Friday night and people's feedback being that that's what they needed. And it wasn't something that was heavy and political. And it's not to say that people don't enjoy that too. But, you know, it's a festival. And with that, it implies a celebration and being festive. So we went with that. But going back to your question about that film, In the Game is a really great film. It's a documentary and it's a community screening over at uh, the Salvation Army in San Francisco on Valencia Street. And it's a documentary that profiles a group of girls that play soccer and how soccer in a way, you know, it's it's sort of a bridge to, I would say, to being young Americans. Coming from immigrant families, There's they're kind of torn about, you know, the traditional role for a girl versus uh, what they're experiencing as young Americans at a high school in Chicago. And so this film touches on that, but it's more than that. You know, it touches on things like, of course, ethnicity and access to college education and the resources available at certain high schools, again, because the tax base in some communities isn't so high, so the schools aren't all that great. So this film really does a really great job about profiling these students and seeing the camaraderie and also their their own goals as as young ladies as they transition from being high school kids to what happens next in their next chapter of their life. So, Lucho, I know that it's hard to have favorites, but it must be tough to choose the closing show. It must be hard to figure out how to open the festival and how to close it. And what's happening at the De Young Museum on October 7th seems really, really fun. It's a whole bunch of shorts made in the U.S. around Latino issues. So why don't you talk to us about that night? Because as we all know, the De Young Museum is definitely a party. It's, a, it's exciting just to be there. So um, what can people expect if they're able to make it out. Right. So uh, the way we're treating this year's program, uh, typically we have a, a an evening program at Friday nights at the De Young every season. This year, the dates didn't quite coincide with our uh, main festival dates, but we decided to include one of the programs that kind of lends itself to what the theme is of the installation that's currently at the De Young. And so since it focuses on the West, uh, we decided to go with uh, Made in California, or Echo and Califa's program of short films. And these are short films that have you know high production value. Thematically, they're all over the map. There's, you know, there's a couple of short docs as well that are part of that program. So it's 90 minutes of uh, little films that really kind of have you see different creative works from Bay Area as well as California-wide filmmakers. And uh, we figured that would be a great way of, of closing out our activities uh, for the festival, as it also has been somewhat of a tradition of having programming at the De Young as well. Lucho Ramirez, so there are people who wait all year for this festival, the 8th Annual San Francisco Latino Film Festival. First off, why don't you tell our listeners how they can purchase their tickets and enjoy some of these films and also see the program? Right. So... You can still buy tickets for the upcoming screenings by visiting our website at sflatinofilmfestival.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and you can see a lot of the information there. You can also just go directly to Brown Paper Tickets and just do a search there of SF Latino Film Festival or SFLFF, and you'll see what's left 
uh, to be screened. The final ticketed events end October 1st. The event over at the De Young Museum is on a first-come, first-served first basis, so all you do is arrive at, at the uh, museum by, I believe it's by 6 p.m., and you pick up a ticket at the door. Thank you, Lucho. And I know that you all have expanded, that this festival is not just in September now. It's much bigger. So tell us about that. Right. Uh, We are a year-round organization. The festival is definitely our cornerstone event that takes place mid-September through mid-October generally during the Heritage Month. Uh, But we do have monthly screenings happening now in San Francisco primarily as part of the cultural corridor, the Latino cultural corridor in the Mission, which is 24th Street. So you can find us there uh, the second Sunday when when the cultural corridor has its Second Sundays, uh, it's 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 a it's a cultural walk. You, there are different activities. Almost all of them, if not all of them, are free of charge, and they include anything from uh, mural tours or performances or mask making workshops, all sorts of things. It changes every month, and our role has been to bring in a film or a series of films to show, and we've been showing them over at Alley Cat Bookstore on Twenty Fourth Street. Again, Nuto, let us know what the website is. Right. It's sflatinofilmfestival.org, and you can join our newsletter or follow us on Facebook to find out what we're doing as an organization or in collaboration with other film groups. Pues muchísimas gracias. Siempre es un placer to have you here and tell us about all the great films that people can take advantage of and see because some of these, you know, really only have a very limited time. If you don't catch them in the festival, you're not going to be able to see them. That is so true. Muchas gracias. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio Eugene Rodriguez. He's the director and founder of Los Censotles. You're perhaps aware of their 24 CDs of marvelous Mexican music. He is the composer of one of the pieces called Valor Latino, which you'll hear a little later in the program. Eugene, how did you first get the idea of founding Los Censotles? Well, the the whole Censotles journey has been a long and windy one, but but it's very uh, rooted in my own personal uh, desire to connect the different parts of me. Um, If you think, if you look at society in general, you'll see that um, for some reason, I can't tell you why, but that Mexican-Americans are are separate. There's a a separateness between Mexican-Americans and the rest of America in a way that you don't find with other ethnicities. Well, that's certainly what Donald Trump seems to think. Well, among others. um, And this is something that goes back many generations before Trump. And and it's something that I have lived with internally. It's almost like there's a, a border in oneself that, that I was trying to, to, to cro- constantly cross and connect the different parts of me. So Los Insolnes was my attempt to create a family-like environment for young people to explore their Mexican traditions, but also to explore the many different parts of themselves. So Los Insolnes isn't just a music group. It's a whole nonprofit cultural entity. Well, it, that's true. It, it began as a youth group back in 1989, but in 1994, there were a lot of problems in our community with gangs and other problems. Um, You're based in Richmond. Well, we're in San Pablo, and uh, but we serve kids from Richmond and San Pablo mostly, and we be- I incorporated the nonprofit in 94 so that we could expand the program to bring in that many more kids. And so please describe the rest of the journey. Well, well, it's a very long journey, but let me just say, fast forward to this year, it's been 27 years, and our center is run by the young people who began as children, kids from the neighborhood, kids who went to Richmond High or other local high schools. So this is something I'm very proud of, that we have created a sustainable cultural model uh, from the neighborhood. We have classes in music, dance, arts and crafts, cooking. We have uh, a production studio where we do our recordings and videos. And we have a performing group that is performed around the world, uh, celebrating the the dignity and and power of our of our traditions. So most recently, you've just come back from Cuba, where you were presenting Mexican American culture in Cuba. Tell us about that. Well, the Cuba trip was quite amazing. Um, you know, 
not many foreign groups get to go to Cuba. There's a few reasons. Uh, you need to have permission. You need to have access. And you need to have money because the Cubans you know, aren't going to pay you. You have to find a way to pay your own expenses. So uh, we've been working on this trip for about four years in different, in different guises. And finally, all the pieces came together. We have a wonderful foundation that supported the trip and uh, some wonderful contacts in Cuba who helped uh, create a tour of four different cities. And it was um, it, it, so it meant it was meant to happen this summer, and that's and that's what happened. You know, Cuba and Mexico have a long historic relationship and a long historic love affair. Uh, of course, um, you know they're not that far away; they share a lot of history in common. And so the people there really, really love Mexican music. People there have Mexican folklorico groups. They 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 have there's Cubans who sing. Uh, Mexican rancheras, kind of in the style of uh, Alejandro Fernandez. And so uh, it's really a thing there. <laughs> they really love it. So having us come was an unusual opportunity to have a Mexican group uh, from outside coming to perform there. And did they understand the concept of Mexican-American? That was a tricky one. <laughs> I don't think so. There was a, We were in the one festival where this gentleman came up and, and, and had recited a, a, a poem that, that he had written for us, a decima, a ten-line poem. And he kept on referring to us as Mexicanos, and, and his friend was standing next to him, kept on uh, kind of uh, correcting him, saying, no, Americanos, but it's okay. You know, we, we weren't there uh, kind of wrapped in a flag. We were there wrapped in culture. So we were, we were, we were happy to uh, not concern ourselves with those uh, details. Now, what about your own journey as a musician? You started this as a musician, but you didn't start it as a music organization. Right. Well, I started as a musician, as I said, to connect different parts of myself. And uh, when I did start uh, the program, I had just graduated with a master's in classical guitar from the San Francisco Conservatory. And for me, it was a way to explore the cultural roots. I grew up in a family with Mexican music. My uncles and aunts would play mariachi music at parties. My brother and I would play rock songs at the same parties. So, uh, yes, absolutely. So me becoming an executive director and a fundraiser was not what I wanted to do as a kid. Believe me, it's not something I did not wish upon myself. But it was necessary to get the work done that I felt was important for me and, and the community. That's interesting. You talked about putting together the two parts of yourself. You mentioned that you played rock music when your family were playing rancheras at parties. And then, most recently, bringing the two parts of yourself together, you put together an album uh, a cover album that was basically a lot of popular music. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's been a long uh, history with us of, of connecting different cultural realms. Uh, we actually did a, a couple of recordings, a couple of songs many years ago with um, some wonderful Cuban rumberos from uh, Son Jarocho and Ranchera with El Goyo Hernandez and Lázaro Ross. And uh, it was... Uh, We've also worked with the Chieftains and Ry Cooter and, and Taj Mahal and, and uh, Dave Hidalgo, Los Lobos, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown. We've always done this throughout the years where we've mixed cultures. Uh, this record covers is something that's new but within the same idea of putting together these these pieces. Uh, so for me, it has been a really wonderful journey, you know, interpreting composers that I grew up with, Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, uh, David Bowie, Robert Palmer, uh, you know all all you know uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, all Bob Dylan, uh, my favorites. You know Sixto Rodriguez. We do a mariachi version of of Rodriguez's uh, song as well. So putting these songs together with Mexican instruments and and Latin rhythms uh, has been a real joy. Let's hear one of them. Very good. Show we can. 
just heard Every Kind of People from the album Covers by Los Sensortles. And we're here in the studio talking with Eugene Rodriguez, the director and founder of Los Sensortles organization, and also a trained guitarist himself and composer. So later, we'll get to hear one of his compositions. So Eugene, after you developed the organization, how did you get to develop a performing group that was able to go international? Well, the, the, even before the organization, we had a youth group. And with the youth group, I would always record them. We used to do little cassettes, you know, on a four-track in my house. And we used to raise money to go to Mexico, mostly to Veracruz, to, to study. So the group was always integral to the organization. And throughout our 27 years, the group has always been central. It's a great recruitment tool. It's a great education tool. We just did a show a couple um, recently at SF Jazz, for example, where in addition to our six-piece band, we have three, two teenagers with us as well as an eight-year-old girl. Um, all of these young people started with us at very young ages, either four or seven and we take them on trips, and this is, this is just part of how we do things. It's like a musical family. So you take these young children, that means their parents come too, or some family members. Well, you know, uh, in our community, Los Ensoles has earned the trust of our families. Mostly our families are working class Mexican, American, or first generation, uh, or second generation. And people are very uh, cautious with their kids, but we have a very close relationship with our families. As I said, our own staff all come from the same neighborhood, all grew up in the same program. So we've, uh, we've, we've traveled uh, pretty extensively with, with young folks throughout the years. You've written a song, Valor Latino, which you've put on your album. I wonder if you could talk a little about that composition before we hear it. Well, Valor Latino is a, a, a real important theme for us. Valor 
has a couple of meanings. One is value, and part of the song speaks about the value that we Latinos bring to our country. Valor also means courage, and the courage that we need to muster in ourselves to promote our own interest uh, directly. This is something that we don't always do, but we are we are learning to do better and better. This is our country, and our children are American children. So it's very important to me that we project this positive, um, proactive uh, message to our community. Let's take a listen. by Eugene Rodriguez, the director and founder of Los Sensortles, and that was his song, Valor Latino, from their album called Regeneration. Thank you so much, Eugene Rodriguez. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Nina. Un placer. Now we're giving away three pairs of tickets to see A Tribe Called Red, they're a Canadian DJ collective that mixes indigenous and global electronic music. It's definitely a unique sound. They'll be playing at the Social Hall in San Francisco, 1270 Sutter Street, and the show starts at 7 p.m. No one under 18 allowed in this show. If you'd like to win one of these three pairs of tickets we're giving away, you have to answer this question. What city is a tribe called Red from in Canada? So please call us at 510-848-4425. And if you answer the question correctly, you will get one of these three pairs of tickets. Good luck. 
I'm Brenda Yescas, and here is this week's calendar for the week of September 27th through October 4th. For Wednesday, September 28th, Oakland-based Pochino Press is releasing local poets Harold Tereson's new book, Hunting for Isotes, and featuring readings by SF Mission poet Norman Zelaya, Nika, Salvi Swag poet M.K. Chavez, and Amira Ali at Octopus Literary Salon, 2101 Webster Street in Oakland, starts at 7 p.m. For Friday the 30th, Mexican singer and songwriter El David Aguilar and Diego Ardilla will be doing a CD release party at Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts, 2868 Mission Street in San Francisco, starts at 7.30 p.m. MissionCulturalCenter.org also for Friday, September 30th, join Nueva Trova Group, Madelina y los Carpinteros, who will be showcasing their unique Latino folk and Nueva Canción music at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Starts at 8 p.m. LaPeña.org For Saturday, October 1st, join Afro-Cuban filmmaker Gloria Rolando as she debuts a new documentary called Dialogo con mi abuela, Dialogue with my grandmother, an audio recording of her grandmother, who was in her 90s at the time, anchors Gloria's latest work, which mixes documentary, fiction, and music in tribute to her elders, particularly Afro-Cuban women, at 518 Valencia Street in San Francisco. Starts at 7 p.m. For Tuesday, October 4th, Pandemonium Press presents The Visible World featuring works by artists Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, Amos White, M.K. Chavez, and more at 1628 Webster Street in Oakland. Starts at 6.30 p.m. The 8th Annual SF Latino Film Festival, Cinemas, is happening now till October 1st in various Bay Area locations featuring films and shorts from all over Latino America. To find out about the films, go to sflatinofilmfestival.com. And this has been a calendar of events, cultura y arte for the Bay Area. If you want to add your event to our calendar, send us an email at larasachronicles at kpfa.org or visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash larasachronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to submit any story ideas or you have segments you'd want to cover or pieces you want to submit, you can email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. You can also listen to the show again or share it with your friends by finding us on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash Chronicles. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.